Thank you, Father Frank. Well, should we begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, and enkindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit you did instruct the hearts of the faithful, may by that same Spirit we be ever truly wise and rejoice in your consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, thank you, Father Frank, and thanks, St. Mary's. I love coming up here always. I've been here many times, graduations and such. And so I'm passionate about vocations, and I have been, uh, not just do I showed up as the bishop of a diocese that has no seminarians right now, um, but throughout my whole experience of being a priest, I, when I was the chaplain at the University of Maryland for eight years, we had 14 men enter the seminary at that time, uh, all of whom are ordained priests right now and happy, good priests. Two of them are Dominicans, uh, and the others are, were my little brothers back in Washington, D.C. Uh, there were five women that entered religious life during that time. In my years on Capitol Hill, two young men um, uh, graduated, I went into the seminary and are now priests again. So, and then when, when I was ordained a bishop here, I had uh, the seminarians, we had five in my parish. Um, and, I, and I don't think that I reflect back and it wasn't like I chased them down with a butterfly net and uh, pushed them into a van and drove them off to the seminary. I, I mentioned it, I talked about it, but I have to think that part of it was that my love for the priesthood and my love for the Lord uh, maybe was infectious. Maybe the Lord was able to use my joy uh, to enlighten hearts. But it's not just the priest who calls the, a man to the priesthood or a woman to religious life. It's ultimately God. After I had received the call from the apostolic nuncio uh, in that uh, handshaking, shocking moment, sitting there getting ready for an appointment, going through a wedding file. The receptionist was sick that day, so I was sitting at the front desk answering phones. And the phone rang and the Archbishop, the Christophe Pierre, said, hello. And I, I, I went up to machine first and I didn't recognize the number and I didn't pick it up. And he left, he went to voicemail. And I, and I heard, and he said, he's French, and he said, Father Byrne, this is Archbishop Christophe Pierre. Please call me at your earliest convenience. And my hands, I was like, he's not calling me because he wants to know how I make uh, my salmon recipe. And so I called him, and he said, oh, what a beautiful weather we're having today. I was like, chat, small chat? We're making small chat here? you're about to change my life. And I didn't say that. I said, yes, it's beautiful weather we're having today. And then he said, the Holy Father would like to name you to be the Bishop of, and then he paused, like almost like a drum roll moment. And he said, Springfield in Massachusetts. And then he said, do you accept? That's how much time you get. Uh, it was not even a full second. And I said, yes, I do. And then I went right into the church and said my prayers. But in the, one of the major steps that one needs to, uh, to do before ordination 
is you need to make a retreat. Canon law requires that a candidate for diaconate, a candidate for um, uh, priesthood, a candidate for bishop or for religious vows must make a, a, a retreat, a silent retreat. And everything was shut, of course, we all knew that. The retreat house was an opening. So I borrowed a, a, a home who was a, summer, a second home from friends of mine and I Skyped in through with a bishop friend of mine, the Archbishop of Minneapolis, St. Paul. I had known him in my studies in Rome. I was a first year man and he was doing his advanced canon law degree, Archbishop Hebda. And we, we Skyped or we FaceTimed twice a day or Zoomed or whatever we did. And one of the things that he told me, he said, he said, God is not sending you to Western Massachusetts because of your resume. He said, yeah, sure, your experience has helped. You know, 21 years as a pastor, uh, your experience in diocesan administration. He's sending you there primarily because he loves you and he loves the people of Western Massachusetts and he wants to bring the two together. And so he said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to pray about how for God, for Christ to uh, reveal to you his great love for you. And in the, there was an office in this house, a small little office. But I said my first mass there and I turned it into a chapel. I had the blessed sacrament reserved there. It wasn't used for anything else. I took away all the stuff off the desk and made that a little altar. So I would sit in there and do my holy hours, praying three, four hours a day. Uh, and I said, Lord, show me how much you love me. Now it was a, it's a beach house. So the, on the wall behind me, my, my, the, the wife, my, my friend um, Loretta had family photos all over the walls. And if she saw a quote she liked, she would put it up there. So the wall was there and I said, Lord, show me how much you love me. And I turned around and I looked right next to me and on the wall was a quote. And this quote said, if your love is the grain of sands on a beach, my love for you is a universe of beaches. If, if your love, if my love for the Lord, he said, was all the grains of sand on a beach, which we think of as a lot, he said, my love for you is a universe of beaches. And the funny thing about it is I looked at it and it said, quote from The Princess Bride, the movie. I burst out laughing. But the Lord really revealed something profound that I have known throughout my whole life. I remember um, hearing the quote, before you were born from Jeremiah 1, I called you. In your mother's womb, I named you. That this notion that we are, have been planned. When the Lord was putting the stars in the sky and the fish in the sea and saying that the black Labrador retriever would be the best animal of all time, in those moments of the, he had your name and my name on his mind. As he hung upon the cross for us, he said, this is for, and he said your name in his heart. In his divinity, he knew each of us there. When he rose from the dead, he said, I love, and he said in your name and my name so much, I want to be with them forever. That's the power of the love that we experience. And so our vocations are just the ways that he knows that we're going to experience that most fully and alive. I remember when there was a guy that came to me 
He had been done the GI Bill to get into, you know, to pay for his education. So he'd been a Marine. And he came and said, you know, I think I'm supposed to be a priest. And I said, really, why? He didn't seem like a very likely candidate to me. Nice guy, but, and he said, because I think it would be the hardest thing for me to do in life. And so I think God wants me to do that. Kind of like, oorah, Marine mentality. I said, I got great news for you. God doesn't want you to be a priest. Go find a girlfriend. And he's married now with a bunch of kids. But the idea that somehow God is going to call us to something that's not going to bring us our greatest joy. Now, the thing about joy is that joy is not always easy. Ask any parent who has been sitting in a bathroom at four in the morning with a throwing up kid. It's not fun. That's not fun. And, but you wouldn't be anywhere else on the planet but there. There's joy and contentment in knowing that that's where you're supposed to be. I always remind my brother priests when they complain about how hard their life is or how overworked they are. I said, you know what? Tonight you're going to go to bed and you're going to sleep through the night. You're not going to be woken up by a kid who never showed up who's got his driver's license. You're not going to have somebody wet their bed. None of that. So just shut up. All right? It's much harder uh, to have kids. So it is that, that my own calling to be a priest uh, was discovered. One of the things that I was blessed to have was my father's oldest brother was a priest. He is a died a priest. He's a priest in heaven now. And he was a tough New Yorker. He, there were stories abounded by him. He was in the Bowery and he saw two guys chasing this other guy running. And he went and tack, did a diving tackle. He played semi-pro football. This is in the 40s and tackles the guys who look like they're about to mug this other guy. And they looked at him and he's standing here in the same robe, Father, he's wearing a cassock. And he said, Father, we're the cops. <laughs> and he, so he got off them and let them continue their chase. But so Father John, I had a very a good man uh, uh, who was an example for a priest. I had parents that were both daily communicants uh, and that made a big difference. Amazingly enough, my two best friends, and still two best friends today, their fathers were also daily communicants. So I remember growing up thinking, oh yeah, that's what dads do. They go to daily mass before the work, till I got, grew up, I was like, no they don't, that's not what most guys do, but I was blessed that I had a father and a mother who both um, centered their life and began their day in that way. It was always sort of an idea in my mind, the, the tug to the priesthood. And one thing I've learned over time is that the first discernment is not, should I be a priest? The first discernment is, am I called to the seminary? Because it's in seminary. You know, if somebody proposes to you on your very first day, say no, because it takes a long time to get to know the person. As Chris Rock, the comedian says, for the three first months of dating, your representative dates her representative. Meaning it takes a while to get to know the person. You gotta start getting in some spats and being annoyed by them and then forgiving them and all these things. So you enter into seminary to do a process of discernment. 
And then in that process, you discover. So when people say, when did you know you wanted to be a priest? I said, about my second year of seminary. A couple years before I was ordained. They're like, what? I said, before that, I knew I wanted to be a seminarian. And then in the process of learning how to pray, learning theology, and learning to be a better man, uh, the Lord more fully revealed that to me. So when I had graduated Holy Cross just up the road, I had been thinking about it. I had only known Jesuits because I went to um, Jesuit high school and then a Jesuit college. So I thought, well, I, I'll, maybe I'll be that. So I went to a come and see retreat, like sort of a weekend, and they thought I was applying. And I was just coming to see, like, how do you sign out the car if you take a vow of poverty? Like, I, I didn't know anything about any of this. And I wanted to know, uh, I kind of wanted to know how that all worked. Um, and he's like asking me about my private history and all this stuff. I got there, it was at a retreat house, I don't even know where, at about six o'clock on a Friday. By eight in the morning, I was driving out the driveway. I was like, this is not the right thing for me. I slipped a note under the guy's door and thank God I'd be a horrible Jesuit. I don't look good in ties. And uh, the, uh, so then I went and taught school. And in, in the process of, my mom, I had told my mom and dad, I'm thinking about being a priest. My mom said, you know, I'd love to have a son who's a priest. I'd hate to have one who used to be a priest. And there was wisdom in that. She knew I was really at the time. And there was no system, like now, a very effective way is, if, is college seminary. Because it's not at all the same level. You can grow up and be a man, not have the culture sort of pollute you in the same way. And, and it's just as great. If a guy leaves there, he's going to be a better husband. If he becomes a priest, he's been well-formed, as opposed to like in the depths of kind of the, the craziness of our culture now, which pollutes and is not uplift. So I taught school for a few years, and in that process I went, uh, and I, uh, the vocations director, who I was talking to yesterday, who's now the vic, uh, bishop in Wheeling, Charleston, said, you need to get a, seminar, a vocations director. So I looked around and asked around. So I met for three years with a, a young priest at the time whose name was Tim Dolan. And now he's Cardinal Dolan of New York. And uh, so I knew him from way back when. Uh, and I have kept up, he was at my ordination here. I kept up a good friendship with him. Funny side story on that, I'll tell you. If you've ever seen Cardinal Dolan or heard him on Sirius XM, He's a big personality, he's very funny. Uh, and he said, uh, we, we were at this big mass where they had a, a TV jumbotron. It was the youth mass for the Right to Life March. And at the end of it, we're all this huge long procession. I'm way at the front and he's at the back. And, he's, and I had been on the other side of the stage. And he calls out and he says, Billy! And I said, your evidence, what's up? And he said, Boy, and he slaps me on the back. He said, boy, when that mass started, I saw the my I looked up at the jumbotron and I said, I have lost so much hair. I've put on weight. And then he said, what am I worried about? That's Billy Byrne, not me. <laughs> but in that process, I really started to hear the Lord speak to me, learning how to pray and pray the office. And so when I went to seminary, it was just a natural progression. Of, of, of reaffirming graces. 
And I can tell you I have not regretted one day of my priesthood. I've been in tragic deaths of young people. I've been uh, walked long marches and I started a support group for families that had lost children in my parish. I just had done so many. Some were opioids, some were suicides, some were just weird natural. And so we would meet and have these people whose, can, whose grief no one else can understand. No one else has, except somebody who's lost a child can really understand that. And so I've been there and held the hands of um, people in dark moments. I always tell young priests, I said, when someone's in the depths of sorrow, show up. You're not intruding into their sorrow. They're in a dark forest and don't know how to get out. So show up and you've got the light that is Christ and his resurrection and take their hand and hold them and say, this isn't going to be easy, but walk with me. And that moments of, of not just joy, baptisms and weddings and all the joys, but the privilege of being able to walk with people from darkness to less darkness is often the case, from less darkness to maybe dusk, is one of the most remarkable privileges. And it's something that, the, the, that our priesthood is able to provide. My celibacy is not a hoop that I jump through to get into the priest club. It's a proclamation of my dependence and of, on the kingdom of God. It's my way of living a radical, radical yes to Jesus Christ. So I say no, but every time I do a wedding, that groom and bride have said no to everyone else in the world and yes to each other. And that's what I have, that's what I have experienced in it. Sure, it's challenging at times, but every commitment is challenging at times. The evil one wants to trip us up, but it's, uh, but if we stay firm, very often people tend to think of happiness as a destination. I'll be happy when I get my college degree. I'll be happy when I find the right person I'm gonna marry. I'll be happy when I get that raise. I'll be happy when I retire. I'll be happy when we pay off the debt. Happiness is always the next thing. Until we realize that happiness is not a destination, but it's a byproduct of doing the right thing, of living well, of doing the good in the world. That's what happiness is. That can be whether you are uh, in the most challenging, difficult situation, or you just won the lottery. That joy and peace and contentment are not necessarily circumscribed by an achievement. I'm very inspired by, um, and Father Huey would probably uh, be happy to hear this, by Cardinal uh, Francis Xavier Van Thuan. He was a, the archbishop in Vietnam. And in the 70s, he was driving to his diocese when the secret police pulled him over and threw him in jail for 13 years, nine of which were in solitary confinement. In first, he sat there and he was so angry and so filled with hatred. He was in solitary confinement. He could hear the jailers not speaking to him. And then he realized, I will not wait. I'm not going to wait for that person to talk to me or that door. It's all going to be what the Lord is calling to me right now. In those moments, he started singing to those guys every day. And he would sing them Latin hymns and do all this thing. And one day, 
he knew they were ignoring him. And one day a voice came and said, would you teach us Latin? And before long, he had them singing the, the Latin hymns to our blessed mother. That power of waiting till the next thing happens, it just brings us suffering. But if you say, I am living now, and I'm going to find the Lord now, and I'm going to bring him. And so it is that my call for each of us, to vocations, to the seminary, to the priesthood, is just one part of a larger call for all of us to discover the beauty of our vocations, of where the Lord has put us today, and what he's asking us. I, I'm inspired often, and I didn't really was not as familiar with the image, I don't know if it's somewhere around here, divine mercy. But divine mercy, you know, with the rays of the Lord's heart, St. Faustina. I like the call to mercy because mercy we tend to, I tend to think, of, I used to think of mercy as like when my older brother or sister would be like kneeling on your chest trying to put grass in your mouth or something and you'd say, mercy, mercy. And yes, for those of you who are familiar with my sister, Sister Didi Byrne, she was one of them. She all looks all holy now, but she, she could uh, tackle and pin you down. Um, but that mercy was like the, the ending of suffering. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us mercy is the movement of God in us to take us from non-being to being. To being less alive, to being more alive. To being less alive in our sinfulness to being more alive in his grace. And, and the journey of life is that movement of becoming most fully alive. Uh, as St. Irenaeus says, the glory of God is human being most fully alive. And so for me, the discovery of the call of the priesthood was where I knew that I was supposed to be. Funny, the, the, the couple that loaned me their house on Martha's Vineyard where I did my retreat, uh, they, we've been best friends ever since. But when we were in college, we were blessed to do a program of a study abroad for a little bit. So one night, she was just, she and I, a group of friends, whatever, I think we were in a pub, and I sort of confided in her that I was thinking about being a priest. So fast forward, I'm ordained, I'm ordained about 10 years, this is maybe 15, 20, 15 years ago, and she calls me up and she's like, Father Bill, I got to read you something. She said, I was cleaning out the attic and I found my journal from that time when we were all in Rome. I mean, we were all in uh, England together. She goes, I got to read this to you. And she said, Billy told me that he's thinking about being a priest. I don't think he'd be a very good one. <laughs> she said, he doesn't seem overly religious and he's kind of selfish. <laughs> and then she said to me, you know, I can think of you as nothing but a priest now. That I wasn't the person that you would have necessarily picked out of the crowd and said, oh, there's the choir boy. By certainly by no means at all would you have said that. You might not have thought, no, I don't think he really has it. But God saw something and let those seeds grow more alive ever in my life. And, um, and, and in that I found joy. And so I think that's really the call to vocations, the call to joy, if that's what God is asking of you, whether it be in the married life, 
whether it be as a single person to live your your life of of like chaste and joyful service to humankind or whether it be as a as a priest or as a religious uh you know my my sister had a really odd route to being a nun being a colonel in the army who served in afghanistan and a surgeon and a nun is not your most typical pick i guess god's got a sense of humor with the burn family but uh that's why it is we need to pray pray for good marriages pray for religious but right now we need the priest because the priest gives us the Eucharist. We need the priest because the priest absolves sin. We need the priest because only the priest can anoint the dying and the sick. It's not the priest, it's not my priesthood, it's not the priesthood of Father Frank, it's the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And why he chose to do it this way, well, we'll find that on the other side. But he did. And so it is that we need to pray for priests, religious, that they will give us this great gift and hopefully raise the whole body of Christ, just as beautiful married couples do. To that end, I'm really glad that my mom and dad were not called to the priesthood of religious life. Amen. I don't know if anyone has any questions they want to ask. Come on, don't be shy. You could ask me anything like. Great. Oh, I, they were right in front of me. Thank you. Sure, God's not done with Western Massachusetts. This it's a big boat, but we're gonna turn it turning it towards the to the sun right now, the S O N. Uh, and we're gonna see great things together. So I hope I'm here for a long time so that we can celebrate it together. Thank you for that. Anyone have any yes? Yes. No, that's fine. Right. So for those of you who are listening elsewhere and couldn't hear, uh, he, this gentleman has two grandsons, nine and seven, and he's gotten them reading the Old Testament and they're getting engaged in, that, in the Word. You know what's really remarkable 
is when I was the chaplain at the University of Maryland, we were bringing in probably 40 students a year at Easter Vigil. We were having conversions. We had young people coming into the church. Um, a good number of them were the grandchildren of practicing Catholics, the children of lapsed Catholics. And they would come in and they saw the example of their grandparents and they're like, I wanna be that, not necessarily that. And they were, many of them expressed anger even or frustration at their parents not giving them this gift when they finally learned what it was. You know, the, in a day where everything is uh, permitted and nothing is forgiven, that's the age we live in. Everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. In this age, the gospel is radical. The radicalness of the gospel is what we live. This is not some old story that we're trying to dust off. This is the most radical message ever and will always be until the end of time. And so it is that the example of great-grandparents, uh, really wonderful grandparents, uh, can change hearts. So keep it up. Anyone else have any questions? Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is about the Catholic and politics. Our, our competency is uh, faith and morals, all right? So we don't have competency necessarily in, but we teach, the church will always be teaching, but never advocating for one candidate or another, because that's not our job, it's not our competency. Uh, and so the, that is, so in relationship, for example, to the, what you've been reading in the paper, perhaps, about the, what the bishops purportedly did and what uh, the, the media has portrayed it, the, the, the bishops are proposing to have, just like we're doing here, but to have a three-year Eucharistic project. We're gonna do Eucharistic engagement, adoration, we're gonna have a Eucharistic celebration congress here in the diocese, and eventually there's gonna be a national one. The document that they're talking about was all meant to be an explanation of the Eucharist and all that. Part of that document is the question of, of Eucharistic coherence, which is nothing new in the church to say, you have to be in the right state with your soul before you present yourself to God for the Eucharistic. So that it's not to say like, hey, you can be a, a human trafficker, come on in, no. You have to get right with God before that happens. And that, that engagement, and, the, and this, is, well, this isn't me, this goes back to St. Paul uh, is talking about this. So they're talking about Eucharistic coherence. It was very clear from the discussion that this is, there's no statement of national policy and there's no naming of politicians. And so it is, they're saying, you have to, you have to adhere in not just what you say, but how you live your life in order to be prepared to receive the Eucharist at any given time. That's why we go to confession or should go to confession. Um, and, and so the, the narrative has been created that the bishops are planning on 
denying politicians community, which they were clearly never said. And then there's been the portrayal of certain politicians as sort of saintly good versus the mean bishops. But that's all a creation, a narrative created that's way beyond the scope of what the conversation was truly about. Some bishops have chosen to speak more specifically, but that's not the, that's not the, the voice of the church in any way. That's the voice of the bishop speaking in that particular case. So um, I do think that in the process, you know, we don't just have a failure of belief in communion. We have a failure at confession lines and um, our preparation, our raw, our awe and reverence in the sight of the Eucharist itself. Uh, and so this is a great opportunity for us to get reinvigorated about what the gift we have truly means and is. And that also means that we, each of us, each of us has to look ourselves and look our Lord firmly in the eye and say, yeah, I'm not worthy to receive you. How unworthy am I at this point? Because I want to be as worthy as I possibly can. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, I don't know why they didn't have the whole mass. I saw that also. But I'd say thank you very much and I'd like to say you're a really perceptive guy. <laughs> Anyone else have anything? Yes. Well, one of the things I do is definitely we come to the holy hours, or, or and also I would say there's never a bad time to reach out to our vocations recruiter, Father John Reardon. And, and find out what events are going on. Because there's this sort of more low level of holy hours. Once, now that we're back, we'll be having maybe more in-person events. There's gonna be a vocations, there's gonna be a vocations weekend in July or an overnight at Camp Holy Cross. I'm going up to say mass up there. Um, so if you go to the website, you can see all the events and say, hey, might as well try these out. The, 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 the message that we're saying is, is everyone's called to be a, all men are called to be fathers, some biological, some spiritual, you know, like that's the idea. I always say to guys, hey, come, you might be called to be a priest or the father of a priest. Come and find out. Um, so, so that idea, so that it's not this, you have, you're going and you're committing, signing your name on the line, but just go have fun, make new friends. Check it out. So if he's a teenager, definitely point him in the direction of the vocations. Uh, even send him to, it's on the dialspringfield.org. You'll see a box right there. Click it. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Should we finish up with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And the Lord be with you. 
May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everybody. Thank you very much, Bishop. Always a pleasure to have you here. Uh, and just so you know, we have some like multi-layered cups of Jello goodness for takeaway in the back. So you can take one or two or three of those home with you. Uh, just as a little treat, a little something to go away with. We feed you spiritually, then we feed you physically. A little food for the journey, just like our Lord. So, uh, yeah, we hope you have a, a good evening. If you have any other questions, feel free to reach out. You can contact uh, Father John Reardon, or you can contact the priest that you know who's in your parish. So, uh, you know, we look forward to, to talking with you and having that conversation. You know, and we encourage you to. Um, you know, the, as Bishop was talking, uh, what came to mind was sort of this painting by Caravaggio, The Calling of St. Matthew. And in the painting, it shows a moment right before St. Matthew is called, where our Lord is sort of pointing, you know, at him. And it's right before the Lord opens his mouth. Right before the light hits St. Matthew and he hears the voice of the Lord. You know, that's the moment that Caravaggio is capturing. You know, and that's the moment that we all need to look for. And that we all need to prepare our sons and daughters to have. So that they can be close to the Lord. They can follow him and be with him and go where the Lord wants them to go. So thank you very much, Bishop, and have a good night, everyone. God bless.